sit down, please? We, uh, good morning. We have a, uh, a special guest uh, preaching this morning. We're honored to have with us Dr. Alan Johnson. Dr. Johnson is Professor Emeritus of New Testament at Wheaton College and Graduate School out in Illinois. Uh, I have gotten to know Alan uh, through the National Jewish Evangelical Dialogue that he and I have been part of for the last uh, five years. And uh, we'd cover your prayers tomorrow and Tuesday and for, those, uh, for us and for our colleagues as we continue in what has been a very rewarding uh, time uh, of uh, dialogue with our, our Jewish colleagues, um, both uh, clergy and academics. So um, Dr. Johnson, back in the 80s, when many of us were trying to figure out how to put more zippers on our shirts, uh, Dr. Johnson was more productively engaged as uh, president of the Evangelical Theological Society, and uh, we're very honored to have him with us this morning. Will you please welcome Dr. Alan Johnson? Thank you. <clears throat> Can you hear me? If you can't, just wave like this and I'll know that, or someone will know to turn up things. Uh, I'm very um, privileged to be here with you this morning. A couple of years ago at the conference, which uh, Jason just mentioned, uh, takes place in DC every June, early part of June, I had the privilege of uh, introducing him and I mentioned something about the church that I had learned briefly from him and also uh, looked up on the website. And I thought to myself, uh, at least the description, you probably have a pretty good public relations person working on that website because the description sounded like a church that, that I would like to be a part of if I lived in this area. And I never thought at that time, that was about two years ago, that I would be invited to come and, uh, and actually uh, speak uh, to the congregation. I consider it a real delight and privilege. I, I know that uh, all of you have memories of 9-11. Of and to me, it is one of the most significant events that has happened uh, in the history of our country since I've been alive, at least. And I would put that event uh, into the category uh, that is very similar to an apocalyptic event. Now, by an apocalyptic event, what I mean is something that happens that isn't a part of the pattern. It doesn't fit in. It isn't expected. It's something that comes uh, suddenly, uh, sort of out of the blue, and it is something that uh, has a tremendous effect on the culture and the society. And we all know that when 9-11 took place, you can probably remember where you were, what you were doing, uh, what happened uh, in uh, succeeding hours uh, and days following. You know what happened in the culture, at least temporarily. We had quite a significant change in the television, for example. You didn't see any violent programs. They were all discontinued. And uh, there, uh, in the filming industry, when they were filming violence, that ceased, again, for a short period of time. 
But we saw uh, the whole society affected and changed by that, uh, those single moments that took place uh, on 9-11. Now, I'd like to come back to that horrendous event that took place and the evil that it uh, displayed to us and to the world and uh, the idea of an apocalyptic event, and I want to relate that to another apocalyptic event which has taken place, which I hope that this morning we can get a little bit of a feeling for the tremendous effect that it has had, not just upon our society or upon other societies for a short period of time, such as the 9-11 did, but something that affects us for, uh, for all time. And I'm turning to a passage in Romans, and I uh, am very thankful uh, that the passage was assigned to me. I didn't pick it myself, so you're not getting some pre-canned sermon that I have given uh, a dozen times in other places. But um, the passage that uh, we're looking at this morning is actually just three verses long. And it's in the eighth chapter of Hebrews. And if you've been here for the messages that have been taking place, you know that uh, there has been a long journey through the book of Romans. And uh, there have been many such journeys that uh, have taken uh, up Romans. I think, for example, of uh, Luther himself in the beginning of the Reformation in the 16th century, taking up the book of Romans and not only reading it himself carefully, but preparing lectures on that book that eventually, of course, led to his whole change of understanding of what it meant uh, to uh, really be righteous before God as a gift and not as something that uh, he was able to earn through uh, penitential acts and through uh, giving uh, offerings to bring people that had died uh, out of purgatory and so forth. And the book has had that kind of an impact, as you already know, I'm sure from the previous sermons that uh, Pastor Jason has brought. Uh, Someone has said that the book of Romans... Uh, or excuse me, the Bible itself could be likened unto a ring and the setting in that ring uh, could be viewed as the book of Romans. And if you follow that analogy through, chapter 8 of the book could be understood as that bright, shining facet of the jewel in the setting. Romans 8 is, I think, the greatest chapter in the Bible, especially with regard to the Holy Spirit. Uh, That is the greatest place that we seem to get a revelation as to the significance of the Holy Spirit in God's redemptive purposes and his plan. And this uh, particular chapter... Uh, can be actually the key to understanding the whole book of Romans. Because if you go to chapter 8 and then you back up 
and you look at the other chapters that lead up to this, and you look at the chapters that follow, chapter 8 seems to be a key that unlocks uh, that particular dimension for us. Uh, And so this morning, I'm going to read these three verses and uh, hopefully uh, be able to give you some of you anyway, perhaps a different way of looking at these verses than you may have had before. So Paul says in verse 28, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Now, I don't know how you can pack more truth into three verses in the Bible than are packed into this section of Romans chapter 8. And the popular way of viewing these verses, I think, is to see in the very early statement an enormously comforting statement. In fact, uh, that statement that Paul makes very early in the three verses is perhaps better known than many, many other parts of the Bible are known, even in the popular culture. That is a comforting note, that all things, are working together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That's a very, very comforting word when distress comes into your life, when reversals take place, when the heavens seem like brass and there's no response to our prayers and we feel that things have to change but they're not changing. Disease comes in. There's loss through accident and death that takes place. And many Christians throughout the ages, and I think reflected even in our songs that we sang this morning, uh, there is a, a comforting word. It's a very good word, a very comforting word that Uh, no matter what is taking place in our lives, that God is still in control. Now, I don't believe that means that everything that comes into our life is planned by God or purposed by God. Now, some theologians and some traditions in interpreting this uh, whole matter of evil uh, would even put that into the category of all things that are working together for good. I don't do that. I think that we, when evil takes place, when there is 
uh, killing in the name of God, for example. That is evil. And it needs to be branded as evil. We need to say there's no getting around it. It is evil. And it is wrong. And God is not the author of evil. Not the author of wrong. Now when, however, we, our lives and individuals, and I go back to 9-11, for example, we knew of individuals that were a part of that terrible evil that took place. We know of ripple effects uh, in our own personal lives that happened as a result of uh, either someone being lost that we knew there or of some consequence that followed from that. Those are evil. Those are bad things. Now, God does not design those things just to be an opportunity so he can make us a little bit more dedicated, a little bit more uh, stronger in our faith. But God is able, even in the midst of evil, to bring, because of his omnipotent power, to bring good out of those circumstances. He uses the occasion to do many things, not only in our life, but also uh, in terms of other people's lives. But now, that's a very comforting word. But now when we get into the next two verses, verses 29 and 30, then it gets a little more complicated. It gets heavy, because it's very... uh, Everything is uh, very theologically weighted here, we would say. And, of course, the word theology, and I found uh, over 40 years or more of teaching students that whenever you mention the word theology, they blink and go to sleep. (laughs) And part of our task in the educational uh, wing of the Christian church is to try to show uh, students and Uh, believers in general that theology is really uh, the root of everything in the Christian life. Uh, And it's just a matter of getting by that little barrier of the word theology and to understand we're all theologians. The question is whether we're good theologians or bad theologians, or better uh, and uh, the best uh, that we can be. So why is this so complex? Because we have the word predestination that comes into there. And, and does God predestinate everything? Uh, does he predestinate every person uh, either to salvation or to damnation? Um, and what does it mean here that he foreknows um, those that he has predestinated? And then we have the word justification, and there's continued discussion about what does justification mean. And then there's the word glorified. What is uh, the hope of the Christian? What does it mean to be glorified? And so forth. And I'm not going to try to solve that problem. As you know, uh, from just a cursory example, there are different Christian theological constructions of predestination and election and uh, these uh, words that are used here. I'm not going to try to solve that Uh, issue this morning with you. But what I would like to do 
uh, is to perhaps give you a new way of seeing what Paul is trying to say and how that might affect our Christian lives. And in order to do this, I need to uh, take you with me through three theological points that will help us to understand what I think Paul is really doing here in this passage. The first one is this, that Paul's concept of the Holy Spirit and the Spirit's relationship to Jesus Christ is given to us in language that can be confusing because I want to say that there is a functional identity between the Holy Spirit and the resurrected Christ. There is a functional identity. Look back in the chapter if you have a Bible here and To remind you, I'm sure, of something that uh, Pastor Jason has uh, uh, pointed out back in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 8. Paul says, you, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Now, there is a language that is equivalent. It sounds like the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is the Spirit of Christ, and it's the Spirit of the resurrected Christ that he's talking about. So that the first thing to get uh, into our understanding and perspective is that there is in the resurrected Christ, a functional identity of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit and the resurrected Christ have a functional identity. In the first chapter of Romans, Paul says in verse 4, he speaks of the Son, the, the, the Son of God, who as to his human nature was descendant of David, and then verse 4 and who through the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, um, of holiness, the, the Spirit of holiness, was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Now, I can't spend a lot of time uh, on that uh, verse, but I think what Paul is saying here is that something happened. There was an apocalyptic moment that happened in the resurrection of Christ. And in that apocalyptic moment, when he was raised from the dead, he was changed. He was changed by the Holy Spirit. And his humanity, which he continued to have, his humanity was changed at that particular moment. He was appointed at the moment of the resurrection that the Spirit effected. He was appointed the Son of God with power. Christ died in his identity with the old Adamic sinful world order. He took that upon himself when he became incarnate. He took upon him 
uh, our sinful nature, though he never sinned himself, Scripture is very clear on that, he took upon him everything that pertains to our state now, our state where sin permeates our culture, permeates our life. And he took that upon himself. He bore our infirmities, our sicknesses. He bore that pain of death, as we can see when he went to his friend Lazarus's grave and cried there. He wept. He carried everything that belongs to this world order. He carried that in his life, and he carried it unto death. And we know that in his death, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians very clearly uh, in chapter 5, the last verse, that he who knew no sin became sin in order that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So that he became everything that we are in order that we might become everything that he is as the resurrected new man. Now, without again going into the details here, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 42 to 49, Paul explains that change, that apocalyptic change that took place in the life of Christ when he was resurrected from the dead. And uh, he puts it in language uh, like this. Um, If there is a natural body, uh, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam a life-giving spirit. Now he's talking about Jesus in his resurrection. He became a life-giving spirit. Meaning not that he didn't have a, a, a real physical body after when he was raised from the dead. Yes, he had a physical body, but that body was transformed in the resurrection. So it became a life-giving Uh, being uh, in terms of what he is now. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man from heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Now, Paul says this, and just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. Now, again, the point here is that the Holy Spirit and the resurrected new creation man are identified. Now, the other thing to get uh, uh, across here at this point is that the believer, those who come to believe on Christ for eternal life, the believer and the resurrected new man, Jesus, are united together. 
That is, there is a, a union that takes place when salvation comes into our life and experience. There is a union between us and Christ. Paul uses the term many times, in Christ. In Christ. We are in Christ. Christ is in us. Just like the vine and the branches in John 15. Where did Paul get this idea? I think it goes back to his conversion experience on the road to Damascus. You remember he was uh, traveling to put Christians uh, into prison, bring them back to Jerusalem, have them tried and put into prison. And um, we know that um, he was serious about this because uh, he had stood and watched with his approval the killing of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. And on the road, he had this uh, vision, this experience of Christ appearing to him. And you can read about it in Acts 9, and uh, there's one other in chapter 26, I think, of the book of Acts. But anyway, what does the voice say to Paul, using his other name, Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? That's the words that were spoken to him. Now, how could the voice of Jesus, resurrected from the dead, say to him, you're persecuting me, when he was persecuting Christians? Because Christians are inseparably connected to Christ. They are in him so that everything that is true of him in his life and including his resurrection, everything that's true of him uh, becomes true of believers. There is uh, an identity. Christ's life, his, his birth, uh, his sufferings, his death, his resurrection is the mirror image of the believer's life experience. It's the gospel in a nutshell. So what is the gospel? It's the life of Christ. That's what it is. And we are united to that. The life of Christ becomes our life. Christ, the eternal Son of God, became incarnate in the present evil age with the humiliation, the suffering, and the death that this age existence that we are involved in became a part of his experience. And then he was raised by the spirit of power to be the source for others of the same life-giving spirit that he received uh, in the resurrection. Now, finally, how does this help us with this difficult passage? Verse 28 again. Uh, let me read it. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. That word purpose. And so it raises in our mind, what is the purpose that God has in all of this? In sending Christ and in his resurrection and in the apocalyptic event that took place when he was raised from the dead. What is the purpose of all this? Well, I would like to suggest to you that the purpose that he's talking about here is that 
that in Christ, God might reclaim us to be his true sons and daughters and to fulfill what was intended for Adam, but Adam blew it, as you know, and carried all of us into this particular mess that we're in now. Christ reclaims our sonship in relationship to God that the first Adam lost in Eden. And then verse 29 tells us that he, he, those whom he knew, foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So we are predestined by God's purpose that he purposed. We are predestined to be conformed to the Im- image of the resurrected Christ, the spirit-powered um, a being that rules over creation as God intended. Now look at verse 30 in this light. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he justified. And whom he justified, thirdly, he glorified. Notice the last word there, glorified, is in the past tense. It's in the past tense. The other two could be seen as Preliminary to that, but the word glorified is, is something that's already done. Now, if we are united to Christ and his story is really our master story, in which all of our smaller stories play into, then I think there's a way that we can see these verses that are talking about those who are predestined by God to, to be reclaimed as his children, true children, that Christ has, first of all, responded to the call of God upon his life. He, first of all, as the writer of Hebrews says, he was called a high priest, and uh, he had a calling for this, and with an oath that was given to him. And he was justified. When he bore our sins, he died as a sinner, not his own sins but he died under our sins. And when he was raised from the dead, he was justified. He was vindicated. And in connection with his resurrection and his ascension, he was glorified. In other words, what what is our history that Paul is referring to here is really the history of Christ. It's really his story. Now, um, why should this be good news to us? Um, I think that it's good news to us, as Paul says, we know. We know that in all things God is working for our good. Last week's sermon, or whenever uh, Pastor Jason preached on the interceding work of the Holy Spirit in terms of our lives, we don't know what to pray for, as we ought, but the Spirit prays. For us. The Spirit helps us. Doesn't eliminate our need to pray. No, He helps us. 
because we don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit intercedes, all right? Now, because the Spirit is continually interceding, even when we're not praying, He's interceding right now for all of us who love Him, who love uh, Christ. Then we know, you see, that all things are being put together for good uh, in our lives. And secondly, we know we have this comforting word because uh, God's good purpose is to conform us in our sonship to the resurrected Christ, our Lord, and to reproduce in us this new creation life that I think manifests itself primarily in our human relations by exhibiting the love of God, this resurrection life of Jesus Christ that the Spirit enables us to manifest manifest personally and corporately. And there's where I see the church. The church's responsibility, among other things, is to help us to develop skill in how God's love can be applied in every situation, every circumstance of our life. How can God's love be applied? Uh, This radical, self-denying, non-status-seeking love Paul will go on later in the epistle to talk about the unity problem. When there is not unity in the congregation, it's because love's not working the way it should. We're not accepting each other's differences. Uh, We're not really accepting each other because we have differences. Uh, He goes on to talk about the contribution to the poor in chapter 15, verse 25. That's a work of the living Christ to bring people in the congregation to express love to those who are lacking. And he talks about that. He also talks about praying for him. Pray for me, Paul says, uh, that I might uh, have uh, a successful ministry when I go to Jerusalem because there's a lot of fear there that he's going to really uh, be not uh, appreciated. Yesterday, I was checking in at uh, the hotel where I'm staying, and um, as I was getting up to my third floor uh, room, uh, I got out of the elevator, and getting in the elevator was a middle-aged woman with her mother, because I heard her call her mother, you know, I'll help you get on. She was an elderly person. Elderly means um, someone that's older than you are. You know, <laughs> and uh, and so I got I got off the elevator. They got on, and I walked down the hallway. And on the floor there was a charger. It looked like a, a, maybe a, a Kindle charger or a Nook charger. And uh, I ran back. The elevator door was closed, and they were already on their way down. And then I got the elevator back up there, and I paused for a minute and said, "I don't know whether maybe I'll just turn it in at the desk down there." Uh, But then I said, no, maybe I can catch them. So I got on the elevator, and I uh, uh, got down outside, and they were just getting in the car to pull away. And I caught up with them. And I said, could this by any chance be yours? You found it in the hallway. 
And uh, the, the daughter uh, looked at me and she said, yes, it is ours. And she said, I can't believe your kindness in going to the trouble to bring this to us. Now, I don't know who she was, and I could have not done that, and I'm not saying this because usually I do the opposite, really. I just say, well, I can't be bothered. It takes too much time to go down that elevator, and I had my own suitcases and everything I had to bring with me. But I felt impelled at that point uh, to do that. Now, who knows? You know, is that not a manifestation, I say to myself, of this risen Christ, this life-giving spirit that lives uh, within us. It can have corporate uh, implications. There's uh, a bishop reported in the last CT, Christianity Today magazine, there's there's a bishop in Georgia, the country of Georgia, and he's established what's called an evangelical Baptist church in Georgia, and he's an Orthodox bishop in the Orthodox church. And he has 17,000 members in this denomination that he's established over there. Three bishops, one is a female, I really like that. He helped uh, to build promote a movement to help the Muslims rebuild their mosques that were torn down or fired or torched, and in in exchange, the Muslims helped the Christians to rebuild their churches that had been attacked. Again, this, this love, unusual love, that is being uh, reproduced there. This is what I think is how it relates to our lives, if we can grasp that significance, that we're united to Christ, and that the Spirit, the new creation of the Spirit, that apocalyptic event has happened in the world. And we are now uh, the agents of bringing that uh, wherever we go, in our homes, in our families, in uh, the workplace, and uh, in the government uh, areas that we might be involved in and so forth. We're a part of bringing that uh, message and that wonderful uh, truth. Now, New Hope is not just your name, but your spirit of life of the new creation. And so, when we leave today, let's remember that that's what we are all about here is taking that living new creation love out into every place that we touch. Thank you.